The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we do echo the words of that song and ask you to send your spirit and commission him now to move through the room here to have your way with us, to show us something of your wonder, of your goodness and beauty. You are, in fact, glorious. But sometimes it's hard for us to remember, hard for us to see. And therefore, we, we sometimes find ourselves distancing ourselves from you, find ourselves wandering. We weren't made for that. We were made to walk with you, beneath your wings, in your hand, sheltered in you. But we forget and we lose sight and wander. So, Father, would you graciously, kindly call us back, send out a call that... that, that strikes our ears, and then open our eyes so that we can see and, and turn us. Cause us to walk with you, dependent. This would be a wonderful thing for us, honoring to you and wonderful for us. And so will you please now do that? Will you open up this passage in front of us today and, and call us to you with it and build your people and honor your name? Would you clear away all distractions from the room, including particularly as we sit here and the temperature might be distracting to us, sounds may come up. And Lord, spiritually, we always deal with hearts that wander and we deal with a, a spiritual world too that has an enemy in it that does not want us to hear you, does not want us to see you or walk with you. So will you clear away all sorts of distractions, draw our attention to yourself, Fasten us to you and, and move us to walk with you. Do that for your honor and for our good, I pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 22, where the story is taking a final turn towards the cross. It's still the, the same Thursday night of the Passover, that great feast and celebration that Jesus used to explain his mission and his, his upcoming sacrifice. He himself is the great Passover lamb. That, that event from way back in history, way back in Egypt, the Passover, that event was always pointing forward to him, to Jesus, as the sacrifice whose shed blood, whose death, that is, substitutes in in the place of those who trust him so that God's wrath can pass over them. That was from long, long ago, always pointing towards him, and he explained that at the meal. And then as the evening went on, he further taught about servant leadership, how we as a people like him should be those who use our authority as ones, ones that we have, the influence we have, the power that we have to bless, to serve others, to do good to them not use it for ourselves. And that, that requires much faith, to trust in God that he will, he will take care of our needs. Faith is at the core of that, as it is at the root of all Christian virtue. 
Faith is necessary to, to be saved, and faith is necessary to walk with God. And so then, therefore, faith is Satan's target. Our spiritual enemy always wants to undermine, to, to destroy faith. And so Jesus prays for that for his people, for leaders and for everyone in the face of all attacks, something that we need when facing spiritual attack or, or facing the natural opposition of the world, which was the subject we looked at last week. Verses 35 to 38, Jesus alerted us to something. Up until this point, Jesus has been somewhat of a celebrity. Not universally welcomed, not universally loved, but as long as people still held out, as long as the crowd still held out some sort of a hope that he would be the kind of Messiah they were looking for, they were still listening to him and still engaging with him and, and generally welcoming to him. But last week we saw he's, he's alerting his people that that's going to change, permanently change. And he and them and us with him will be, will be on the outs, will be on a different page from the world, and that's going to make there to be opposition, which will require much faith in us to walk with him. Be difficult now, from now on, to be difficult to walk with him and difficult to hold to him because there's going to be a world out there, there's going to be spiritual powers at work on us inside here in our hearts. They're going to want to draw us away. And it's that kind of temptation to be drawn away that brings us to our passage today and its focus on prayer. So let me read this passage. This is verses 39 to 46. I'm going to make two observations from it about prayerful dependence on God and the need for God to help us, need for, for God to work in us, to draw us to him. I'll read the passage, and then I'll make two observations from it. This is Luke 22, beginning in verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew, withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him, being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray, that you may not enter into temptation. Luke 22. I'll make two observations. Here's the first. We were meant to live in faithful dependence on God, even and especially amidst trial. We were meant to, made to, designed to, we were meant to live in faithful dependence on God, even and especially amidst trial. Verse 39 moves us out of the room where they were eating the meal and then out of the city of Jerusalem to the nearby Mount of Olives where each night they had regularly been, been spending the evening, sleeping there. Jesus is there with the 11 disciples and in verse 41, 
maybe leaving them at the regular campsite perhaps, says that he goes on away a short distance, kneels down and prays. And right there, it'd be easy for us to miss something because we read that, we see something that feels normal to us. It's a common thing for us to kneel in prayer. That's a common posture for us today. But back then, they stood up to pray. We saw that earlier in chapter 18 in the parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector who were both standing and praying in the temple. We see it alluded to down below in verse 46 when he says, rise up and pray, rise and pray. Their common posture was to stand in in prayer. So Jesus is not just assuming the customary prayer position when it says in our passage that he kneels or when, as the other gospels say, he fell on the ground or fell on his face. Jesus is collapsing falling to the earth in a bit of brokenness here. Why? Because of what's coming. What's drawing near a great trial. Judas and the crowd is already on the way. The first domino in this, in this last little chain of events that leads to the cross is about to fall. The shame and the pain and the death and the full outpouring of the wrath of God. All that Jesus has just been explaining about and as God knows is coming and knows well the fullness of the horror of it all, it's imminent. He's about to bear the brunt of the wrath of Almighty God, and he knows it full well. This is his response then. And how can this, how can this Jesus, I mean, just talking about as God knows it full well, he, he's, he's God. He's fully God. How can he be broken in anguish, or as it says down below, in agony, Because he's also, while fully God, he's also fully man, fully human. He's both, fully man and fully God. He's he's not a combo, not, not some sort of mixture of like divine man or human God. He is fully God and unmodified, also fully man. All that God is and all that humanity is. And he is filled with dread and agony as he takes in what is coming. And so he turns towards God and puts himself before God. He prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Enter into this and consider what he is considering. This cup. The cup of the wine of wrath, as Jeremiah 25 puts it. The cup of horror and desolation. In the words of Ezekiel 23. An image used throughout the Old Testament in the context of judgment. When the condemned is made to drink up a cup 
and to drain it all the way all the way down to the dregs. And in different places, it's, it's pictured as a roiling and, and foaming cup of poison or like drinking shards of glass. And the judge, in this case God, forces upon the condemned and makes him, them, drain it all the way down and take into themselves destruction. It's frightful and colorful imagery. And though Jesus, God the Son, knows that this cup of wrath has been prepared for him, he still looks at it and dreads it as a human, as a man. And so he asks, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. If there is some way, if there is some other way, if there could be some other plan, if there can be some other satisfying substitute sacrifice, some other way to atone for sin, some other way to propitiate, to satisfy the wrath of God, if there is another way that pleases you, that works, if you will it, I ask, let that pay. Let, let that other way be, please. It's completely natural and appropriate. And how does God answer? He responds by sending an angel from heaven to strengthen him. And so that fixes everything and Jesus is no longer bothered. No. He's strengthened into the next verse, verse 44, as it gets worse. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. Doesn't give us the words this time. But it does clarify that the intensity was elevated more earnestly. So much so that Jesus broke out into a profuse sweat. Not bleeding, sweating. Middle of the verse. He prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like Great drops of blood falling to the ground became like being the operative words. Some of us may have always believed or at least been taught that he sweat blood here in this garden prayer, but that's not what the text says. Became like is language of comparison. It's language used in numerous passages where the clear intention is to compare one thing to another along the lines of a simile, like or as, this, like that, this, as, that. His face became like that of an angel. Or the people of the crowds are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Stephen's face in Acts did not become the face of an angel. It became like that of an angel. The crowds in Matthew 9 did not become sheep, like sheep. Jesus' sweat did not become blood. Rather, the point is, he broke into a sweat, not just a shiny, glistening face sweat, large drops of sweat rolling down his face, his neck, his arms, dripping off of him. We'd probably say he was sweating bullets. It's our phrase, he's sweating bullets. Not actually bullets. Large drops of sweat. Intensity. (laughs) 
You ever seen a person grievously hurt? They sweat. Luke's expression, and the point is he is tense and worried and distraught in agony, praying, praying, praying. Oh, Father, I know it must be, but must it be? Is there any other way? Would you be pleased with some other plan? I know it has to happen. I've taught about it myself. I know it so many times, but oh, the cup of your wrath is terrifying. Can it be drained in some other way? He's gripped. We should pause to consider the reason for his agony. Because sin is awful and God is holy, holy, holy. God is not raging. God is not losing his temper. God is not out of control and dangerously furious. He's not a madman. He's holy, Holy, holy. And therefore see sin, the rejection of him, and the turning away from him and separating ourselves from him and and turning instead to our own ways and our own paths and our own wisdom and our own powers. He sees that as the horror and destructive evil that it is. And being the holy, holy, holy one will not allow it to go unpunished. We often think in some distracted way that, distracted way that oh, that, that's, like, that's wrong. But then we move over and we read a news article about somebody who wickedly abused a little child, sexually molested this one for a long time. We say, oh, wait a minute, I thought sin wasn't bad. Sin is evil. Sin is wrong. Sin requires wrath, and we know it. When we feel it, God is holy, holy, holy. Sin is awful. And so the cup of the fury of the wrath of God against sin and all who embrace it is so very dreadful and only one who has looked into it as he has held it in his hand and seen it knowingly, only he can accurately assess it and it is terrifying to Jesus. Such is the seriousness of sin and the predicament of wrath and hell. It's the reason for the agony of his sorrow, the agony of this moment. Such is the seriousness of the predicament of of sin and wrath and hell. And such is the magnitude of the determination of God Almighty to be merciful to sinners. That's the other reason for this agonizing moment. There is a son, a perfect sinless son, sweating bullets, holding the cup in front of him himself right now because and only because God means to save sinners. The easy answer to this horrifying dilemma is, you know, never mind, son, you're right. You don't deserve this. They do. Give it to them. That's the simple answer to this. 
which both father and son know and are not discussing at the moment. Because that's not going to happen. The discussion is about, is there some other way to save sinners? Not, are you going to save them or not? If you are willing, but I know you're not, that's why I'm here. Is there some other way? But I know there isn't. Only the perfect sacrifice atoning for sin, only the cross saves. I was sent to drink this cup, sent to save by my substitutionary sacrifice, sent to give my life in place of them. There isn't another way, so give me the cup. Give it to me. Behold the determination of the love of God. The determination of the mercy of God. The determination of the grace of God. The humility of God. Strengthened to walk right into such suffering to save sinners like us. Holding it agonizing over it. Not my will, but yours be done. Here is glory. This is glory. A marvelous, beautiful, attractive picture of your Savior, Christian. The Savior of all who trust Him, who trust in His death alone to atone for our sin. His death, that's how He drinks in our place the cup of the fury of the wrath of God. He drinks it. It's not a physical cup. He doesn't physically drink anything. He drinks it by dying, by taking into Himself, on Himself, upon His own head, destruction that we might live. That's what the shedding of blood is. It's dying. His death in the place of those who trust him. Hallelujah. What a servant savior. This is glory. What an agonizing trial he faces. And how does Jesus respond in the moment? As the agony bears down on him, he collapses into the presence of God. It's important to ask, important to note, because it doesn't only tell us about Jesus and show us Jesus and show us his beauty. It, it does do that. It, it certainly does that. But remember, what we're looking at here is not what's, what's lifted up here is, is not the, the wonderful deity of Jesus. It's the humanity of Jesus that we're seeing here. And so as we're looking at him, what we're seeing is the perfect man, the perfect human And so, so what we're seeing there is looking at that, that's what humankind is supposed to be like and is supposed to do. What we're meant to do, what we're made to do, designed for, and what he aims to help us to be and do. So facing great pressure and anxiety and agony, what does he do? He collapses into the presence of God, submissive, 
dependent, looking to him for help, entrusting him with the outcomes. To pray for the relief of the trial, a change in circumstances, the change in the course of life, that too is human and completely appropriate. Nothing wrong with that at all. Let this cup pass, please. That's fine because of how he prays it. Father, if you are willing, and nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. My will is that this not happen. I don't want any part of this, speaking for me. But my greater will, my higher will, is that your will be done, not mine. You are my Father, and I trust you. That attitude there is perfectly human and perfectly fine and perfectly appropriate. Communicating with the Father and clearly expressing what he wants and also clearly what he wants more. That whatever God the Father wants, that that be done. He's willing to leave it up to God, but he asks he lays it out there. And just let it go and not bother asking. He brings it there and says, Lord, here, please. But I'm depending on you. I'm entrusting myself to you and I'm putting myself in your will. And then we see as, as events lead forward, he gets his answer. Judas comes, so does the cross. And Jesus never fights it but submits to it as the Father's will for him. beautiful that we consider that about Jesus, but again, that's what we're meant to be like. Lay our requests before God, indeed, but lay them there like this. Here's, here's what I'm asking, here's what I'm concerned about, but I, I do this, Lord, more concerned that your way be the way. I know you as my Father, I know who you are, I know you're good, I want your will. That's what honors God. It puts him, him and, and us in the right place. It puts him, as, as should be, in the, the place of the one to whom all things are submitted, the one to whom we surrender. We surrender our wills and we do not presume upon him to order things like we say it should be. To tell him how things should be. This is the right posture for people. Your will be done. So as you run through, this is repentance in order for you. Help you think about that. Do you find complaining, grumbling, critical thoughts about how things are going? A little judgmental attitude. God shouldn't do that. That shouldn't be. Maybe those are the places where what you find creeping in is some, some true theology that the sovereignty of God and the wisdom of man moving like that. Faithful dependence on this God Faithful response, faithful submission to versus proud and, and sinful autonomy, complaining, 
It's repentance in order. We, we were made to live beneath him. To, yes, to speak to him about our desires, our requests, indeed, but to live beneath him, submitted to him, saying, whatever your word says, that's what's, what's right. Whatever you will, that's good. You are God. It's right. We're made to, meant to live dependent on him. So that's right. But there's something maybe more attractive there. We're meant to live dependent on him, faithfully dependent because it's right and and because it's good. It's good. There's life in it. This world, this existence, this, this day-to-day string of circumstances, it's too much for us. It is too big, too unpredictable, too evil too broken. It's too much for little old you, little old us to handle. We cannot. We cannot make it work. We cannot keep ourselves, let alone everybody else. We do not see wide enough and we do not see far enough to even know what is best, let alone we are not strong enough to accomplish it. We are flowers quickly fading. We're just little people. Seriously. We are so small and so weak and so frail. And fear arrives and anxiety arrives in the moments that you realize that. And if we have nowhere to go in those moments, no shelter, no rock, no tower in which to find protection, we will find then life to be miserable and despairing and depressing and hopeless and terrifying. When you find that you are, when you discover that you are bobbing along in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and you can't see coastline anywhere, when you discover that's where you are actually in this world, even right now at this very moment. No, I'm not. I'm sitting in a blue chair in this room. Most of the time we have heat in here. I've got clothing. I've got some money in the bank account. I'm fine. No, you're not. You're so small and so weak and so vulnerable. Really, you could be driving home this afternoon, right? I mean, in 30 minutes, you could be driving home minding your own business and you have no idea what the nut job in the next lane over is going to do and how that's going to be your death. You can't control that. 
And the moment you realize that, I am a little dot bobbing in the middle of a vast ocean, and I can't do a thing about that. If you realize that, that's when fear, that's when anxiety piles in, and if you have no place to find shelter, you are in trouble. This troubling aspect of the human condition is universal and is not meant to be solved or addressed with distraction or denial or stoic, stiff upper lip. That's, we, we try that. We try that all the time. I know life's bad. Give me a quart of ice cream. Did that help? <laughs> For a moment, it does. For a moment, it does. <laughs> or, or, or give me three whiskeys. For a moment, that helps. For a moment. We press through, we work harder, we, we distract, we, we overlay, we suppress. That's, that's the problem with the human condition. That's, that's all we have to do. And when you discover that's all I have to do and the alcohol's worn off and I'm still bobbing in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and sinking. Anxiety and fear and depression and despair will grab hold of you. And that's, that is the tragedy of the human condition, and that's all that we would have by ourselves. But there is a great hope here that we were never meant to live by ourselves. We were made to live faithfully dependent on one who has it all. We are like little bitty children wandering around in the mall all by ourselves. You're a six-year-old wandering around in the mall. You're great until you discover, I don't know where mom and dad are. Then you're afraid. The good thing is, lost in the mall, so we think, we've, we've got a God we're supposed to, to, to hold hands with. We're never meant to live independent from him, but to live faithfully dependent beneath him, with him holding hands with us. Always. This is, this is right, and it is incredibly good. Because here's one who actually does see wide and far and who actually does have power to make what is right be. Who sees all the troubles that we are bobbing around in at the moment and who sees the great trouble coming, the cup. And who says, I got all of this and I got that too. This is good. This is glory. To live faithfully dependent on such a God is good, right and good. Conscious, faithful dependence. It brings incredible patience and freedom and hope and even joy amidst all the troubles in life. Because we know, Lord, I would, I would prefer it like this. But your will be done and you are my Father you are my Father, and you know what is best, and you love me with an everlasting love. You have saved me to yourself. That's why the cup. That's why the cross. And you have promised never to leave me, nor forsake me. 
My life is in your hands. I would prefer this, but your will be done. That's where we can breathe and no joy even amidst sorrow. No patience even amidst adversity. No thankfulness even amidst grief, trouble. That's how life was meant to be lived. That's how we were made to be constantly dependent. So the next question leading then to the next point is, so, so how does that get developed in us? How does that get fueled or grown, experienced? That leads us to the second observation. The dependence we need is fueled by communion with God in prayer. The dependence we need is fueled by communion with God in prayer. So in the middle of the passage, if you just look at this passage and you look right in the middle of it, we see Jesus praying. We actually even hear a bit of his prayer. So that was one of our observations, what's going on with him as he's praying, as he's interacting with God there. But then we notice that the beginning and the end, the two bookends of the passage, verses 40 and 46, Jesus says two other things that are the same. Pray to us, command, pray that you not enter into temptation. He prays, and he wants us to pray that we may not enter into temptation, which can't mean, can't mean something like that we not be tempted, that it never happen, because that would be to pray that we not be human, that we not live in the world, and that there not be any spiritual forces of evil. That's not the case. We will be tempted. Pray that when tempted, you not enter into it that you not be drawn along into it, into that which is tempting. If you think about Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness back in chapter 4, Satan showed Jesus, for example, all the kingdoms of the world, tempted him with the offer of, of authority and glory in relation to that, and Jesus saw it all, he heard it all, he understood it all, understood the offer, but he stopped short being drawn into the temptation and therefore drawn away from God, tempted to, you know, the deal is worship me and I'll give you all this, tempted to be drawn away from God towards Satan, he stops and is not drawn away, remains dependent. That's what we need too, to not be drawn into the temptation but instead remain dependent. The enemy, Satan, is coming to sift, not just leaders but all of us. We live in a world that's that's difficult and hostile, we're on different pages from, there's going to be challenged constantly. We're going to see numerous chances to meet our own needs and resort to our own resources and turn after a different path and we'll understand what's offered there. We'll understand some of the short-term pleasures. We'll understand the difficulty of walking this other path. There will be enticement. Pray that you not be drawn into it. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's our prayer. Jesus urged his people to pray that twice, beginning and end. So do you know what you're looking for in the answer to that prayer? Maybe, yes, maybe it would be a reducing or a tempering or an eliminating of some 
some attractive, tempting situation? Sure. But more likely, it's going to be strengthened amidst the temptation, like what happened with Jesus in Luke 4 and like what happens with Jesus here. Strengthening for faithful dependence. Much more common than the removal of that which might draw us away. Strengthening for faithful dependence. And that comes through communion with God. And that's the purpose, in fact, of prayer. Strengthened for faithful dependence comes through prayerful communion with God, through prayer, in prayer not just as an answer to a particular prayer request. It might seem like I'm splitting hairs there, but I'm not. Something important there, I think. It's, it's perfectly fine, of course, to pray, Lord, increase my faith. Lord, strengthen me against being lured away from temptation. Sure, yeah, pray that, but there's more here, seen particularly in verse 46. The commands in 40 and 46 are extremely similar. The grammar of them both expresses ongoing activity, so it's not a pray once, it's pray, pray in an ongoing sense. And surely they're meant to be seen as duplicates, framing the passage beginning and end. But verse 46 in the original language has one little additional element to it that clarifies how we are supposed to read those two commands. It is not, listen to this carefully, it is not, pray the request of, may I not enter into temptation. But rather, it's pray so that you may not enter into temptation. There's a difference there. Not, Pray the request of, Lord, may I not enter into temptation, but pray so that you don't enter in. I pray because engaging in prayer itself is helpful for me to not enter into temptation. That, that's the point. Prayer itself does that. Now, Jesus does not mean just any old prayer of any old sort to any old deity or being because it's kind of like meditation. It's helpful. No, obviously he has biblical prayer in mind here. That activity itself, not just the answer to a request that one might make in prayer, that activity itself is helpful. That has purpose. We need to notice that so that we take one small step away from thinking of prayer only as the process by which we file a request for something to be given later. We do, of course, make requests in prayer. We need to think a little more broadly about prayer so that we think that prayer in the moment, prayer right now, as we're doing it, blesses, helps, builds, strengthens, 
We should expect then that, that praying itself produces effect on us because at its core, prayer is communing with God. Not just asking for things, communing with God. And that's what strengthens us. As we interact with God personally, in this moment where we are, we are praying, we are interacting with him personally, we are coming together, we are uniting with him, and we behold him and are renewed. We are made more like Christ within. Christ is getting at here, when he gives these two commands, front and, a, front and end, he's getting at, come regularly, in a continuing ongoing sense, come into the presence of God and commune with him, meet with him. And as you meet with him, you will see him, you will engage with him, you will interact with him, you will be developed, grown, transformed. And that actually builds you up and helps you to not enter into temptation. Praying experience itself. So draw away and get alone with God. Physically alone, probably best, freeing yourself from distraction, but if you're around other people, if you, you can do it around other people too. Sit on an airplane, look out the window. Sit on the train and look out the window. So it seems like you're daydreaming, but you're mentally alone with God. Draw away. How important is that? Well, for any couple, any couple, what's the point of alone time with each other? Like going on a date, maybe. Or, or if you, you have kids, conversation with each other at night after the kids are in bed. What's, what's the importance of that? It's not that you can't or don't relate to that significant other when there are others around. You can, you do. Sometimes you can greatly enjoy your significant other in a party or in a group around other people, sure. But it's not the same. The things you do and say and share with each other, that's all different. It has a different degree of vulnerability, a different degree of openness and honesty when it's just the two of you. Same with you and God. There's a different degree of vulnerability and openness and honesty when it's just the two of you. Draw away and get alone with him. If you have 15 minutes, great. If you have 45 minutes, great. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. How am I going to do that? Okay, realize this. God created the Sabbath and made it one of the Ten Commandments. God created the Sabbath and made it one of the Ten Commandments. Not for him, for you. So that you would always have opportunity to have some margin in your life to draw away and get alone with him. To come and corporately worship, but then to be by yourself somewhere else the rest of the day 
for some portion of the rest of the day. I'm, I'm, there is no law here about how much and in what ways, but let me just point out, God commanded Sabbath for you for this purpose. A blessing to you. Get away with him in some way for some period of time. And when you get there, you're not trying to do nothing. You're trying to very much do something. You're trying to unpack the suitcase of you in the presence of him. And then to search out and apply all of him in relation to all the stuff you've been carrying around. You collapse in front of him, down your knees, and here, Lord, take, take a look at this. It's a burden for me. It's a fear of mine. It's a confusion I have. It's a question I wonder about. It's something that I really struggle with and don't understand or can't seem to get through or I'm constantly hung up on and tempted by. What do you have to say about that? What do you want in this? What do you promise that relates right here? How does your character impact this? You know, come to think of it, what is your character? And what are your promises? And, and what, what do you want in, in just in general? And, and is there anything particularly that would inform this in your word? I've forgotten. I need to remember. Would you remind me? That's what you're doing. And that's communion with God. That's you opening up you in front of him and saying, Speak to this, address this, come sit in the middle of this and sort it out for me, God. Help. You can see that it's scripture informed. You need to know the truth. It has requests and questions in it that might be a discovery of certain pieces of information. You might learn more things. You might, you might hear something specifically. You might read something but all of it is all covered by an attitude of dependence and vulnerability and, and honesty, a desire to be formed by him and to be conformed to him and informed by him. Not my will, but yours be done. And you come to God like that, asking, Lord, here, help me, and something supernatural happens. As it were, he visits you from heaven to strengthen you. Now, the Spirit of God actually dwells inside of you, so it doesn't have to come from heaven. But if you're a Christian, the Spirit of God lives inside of you. And so really what we maybe might more theologically say is that the Spirit works in you to, to fill you and transform you by renewing your insides. Put a couple of Bible verses on that. That's what, that's what happens when we commune with God. The Spirit of God fills us and changes us on the inside in, in supernatural ways. It is not just mechanically, I learn a fact right here. I become different. God changes me, you, as we sit with him, open up our lives in front of him submissively and say, speak, interact, move. We become different. I might learn more things, but probably what happens is that all the rest of life is cast in relief against a God that I'm now beholding differently and more sweetly. It's probably what happens. I see him more clearly. 
see him in his goodness. That's what we need. That's what happens to us in prayer. We, we commune like that with God, talking to him and listening to him himself. And supernatural change results from that. That's the path to strong, faithful dependence. So do you pray like that? Do we pray like that? Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we neglect such prayerful communion because we don't really see the threat or the need for it. Think everything's going great. It's just because we haven't discovered we're in the middle of the ocean yet. We're always in danger. We're always under threat. So because of that constant threat, go to God, but, but also realize that this is something else we don't realize is that this is, this is our joy. This is what we're made for. This is where life is found. Go to him because of threat and go to him because of joy. Sometimes we don't realize those things and so we, we don't commune with God in prayer like this. But there's another reason that we don't, which is actually in this text, and it's odd a little bit. End of verse 45. He told them to pray. When he came back, he found them sleeping for sorrow. Not just sleeping because of exhaustion. Specifically, it says, because of sorrow. They're already beginning to fall into, into temptation here a little bit. Evidently, they're starting to figure out that something bad is about to happen. Something. And disappointed. Something incredible. It's sorrowful is afoot. And while under that pressure, Jesus goes to God and the disciples go to sleep. The eyes in some way, are focused on and are controlled by the sorrow. That depressing reality, the despondency that saps vigor and strength from them and they become fatigued enough to sleep. Now, physically that can happen to our bodies in different ways, but the point is, what is influencing them. Jesus is under the same sorrow and he goes one way and they go a different way. Something has their focus and sometimes that same thing has our focus. We, we, we have a word, we, perseverating. We, we stew. We get concerned. Sometimes it's anxious. Sometimes it's just depressing and, and doubling down depressing and then, and then more and then woe is me and it's and what we need to do is realize part of the reason I'm sinking is that I'm doing this physically. I'm reaching down and looking down. I'm focused on that which is sorrowful. And indeed, it is sorrowful. The question is, how can I rejoice amidst the sorrow? And the answer is from communion with God. So maybe one of the reasons that you find yourself in a particular situation drawn away from God is just a question of focus. What are you looking at? I'm not denying that. What do you do with that reality? 
You say, yes, but I take that thought captive and submit it to Christ. It becomes one of the things in my suitcase that I unpack and say, Lord, this is sorrowful. This is troubling. This is grievous. This is overwhelming. What do I do with this? Help me. He told them what they needed. He modeled for them what to do. And they sank in sorrow and fell asleep. They looked at their circumstances and they listened to the voices from the world and maybe from their own flesh instead of the voice of Jesus. And then, therefore, just wallowed in sorrow. That's not all of us all the time, but it's one of the things here in this text. The point is, amidst this world, amidst this life, there will be numerous and varied temptations. They're going to come. And they all uniformly want to pull us away from him into trusting in ourselves and walking in our own paths and our own wisdom and our own strength. We're not made for that. We're made to walk dependent on God and that, that nature in us gets built up and strengthened by regular communion with God, by beholding of this one who is good and this one who is strong. So go to him prayerfully, consistently, Unpack yourself before him and listen to him. Let me pray. Father, will you grow us? Will you grow us in, in commitment and in concern to and in being convinced that this is where our life is found. This is the one thing necessary to sit at your feet and commune with you. Will you grow us in that for the sake of growing us as humble children dependent on you, faithfully dependent, even and especially amidst trials. Lord, we need this from you. We need your help. So will you strengthen us? Will you, will you come and meet with us even now and build up your people? That's where life is found for us and that would be honoring to you. Thank you. We trust this to you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.